Welcome everybody to the podcast today. We have a great, great, great guest, um, as usual. Uh, we're talking all about harm reduction with Stephen Murray. Stephen Murray, MPHNRP, is an overdose researcher and harm reduction program manager at Boston Medical Center. He recently retired as a lieutenant at a large regional ambulance service in Western Massachusetts and had served as a first responder since 2013, working both as a firefighter and paramedic. He regularly shares for a national audience about his lived experience as a person who used drugs and overdose survivor. In 2020, he founded the Never Use Alone New England Hotline, now the Massachusetts Overdose Prevention Helpline, a free overdose detection and response hotline for people who use drugs and currently is the director of the program. Stephen provides expert technical assistance around the topics of overdose prevention, emergency medical services, and harm reduction to a variety of organizations, including the Berkshire Regional Planning Commission, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, the City of Northampton, RISE Foundation, Massachusetts Drug Supply, Data Stream, and the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. He has guest lectured at Northeastern University, UMass Medical School, Bennington College, Boston University, and Ohio State University, and has had work published in the American Journal of Public Health and Health Promotion Practice. This was a great conversation, a very timely conversation, because harm reduction is my jam. I love it. And ultimately, what we're trying to do with people who use drugs is save lives and stop people from dying and harm reduction does that. So stay tuned for the episode. All right, everybody, welcome to the show. We have a, another wonderful, wonderful, great guest, a great guy on the show. Um, I'm waiting for the day to have a terrible guest, um, but we have <laughs> just great guests so far. Um, so this is Stephen Murray. He is somebody that I'll let him introduce himself and background and all that stuff, and then we'll jump on in. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, it's always an honor to follow way cooler <laughs> people than I am. Um, no, no, no. But uh, yeah, my name's uh, Stephen Murray, and um, I'm a overdose researcher at Boston Medical Centers. That's sort of my primary job. Um, but I uh, am myself an overdose survivor and person in long-term recovery. Um, I was a paramedic um, and a first responder for almost 10 years here in Massachusetts. And um, I just have like a pretty wide uh, lens as to like what's going on in the world of people who are using drugs and harm reduction, um, both here in mass, but also sort of like nationally. Yeah. I think that was one of the main reasons I wanted to like, you know, we connected a bit on Twitter and socials because of that, because, you know, again, I, I do a lot of work in the, in the substance field and, you know, again, the, the rise of opioids and et cetera. And it's, it's an interesting experience because when you're working from my end, right on this end of it, you get the people who are like, well, you don't know what it's like, right? People on the other end, um, people who are who are using and then that life that comes along with it. And it's interesting, always really important to hear that, right? To hear that side of it and to kind of have that experience as well. So I was like, let's bring you on and then and talk about all that stuff. All right. So first question, I was throw off like a, a random question in there. How many kids is too many kids? From a- <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're asking the right person. Um, I know. Yeah, so I have five. Um, yeah. Five's a lot. 
um, I, uh, I kind of have like a, a little bit of interesting, uh, kid accumulation background. So, yeah. um, uh, two are biologically mine, uh, yeah. two I've, two I've adopted and, uh, uh-huh. one we had custody of for, um, yeah. last seven years. And so it's kind of, kind of a blend, but I went from like zero to four kids in like a year and a half. <laughs> oh my so goodness. when I first started dating, well, before I even started dating my wife, I knew her for a while and, yeah. um, I knew she had two daughters. And so, um, I, you know, I was sort of expecting, you know, like, yeah, all right, I'm dating someone who has kids. So the first time I ever stayed over, uh, I, like, got up the next morning and I, like, went to the bathroom and I walked back and there's this, like, 12-year-old boy standing in the kitchen. <laughs> and I'm like, who the hell are you? And he's like, who the hell are you? And uh, it turns out that my wife had just taken him in. Um, he was her uh, former uh, stepbrother. Um, okay. Kind of a... But yeah. he, 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 uh, he's in nursing school now. I'm really proud of him. He's doing great. Awesome. Um, so, uh, and then we, we end up having our son about a year, year and a half after that. So quickly yeah. went from zero to four kids. And then we <laughs> added the, we added the fifth one <laughs> two years ago, but we're done now. Um, so yeah, yeah no more kids. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah I, I'm, I'm speaking as someone who, who recently became number f- fourth one and I'm just like, oh my God, what the, what the hell are we doing here? How, how yeah. many kids is too many kids? Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. It becomes it becomes a bit of a mess. But it's interesting. I feel like uh, when you go from the first kid to the second kid, it's a it's like exponential growth. Yeah. But then it sort of becomes more marginal after that because like you're already cooking for a lot of people. <laughs> you know, I I think the the most frustrating part about having five kids is that the the process of getting in and out of a car. Oh my goodness. Is a lot. Like when we stop, yeah. like we, my parents live like three hours away. So like we go visit them, we have to stop at least once. And yep. like, we can't do a five minute bathroom break. Like it's no. going to be a full half hour just to get people yeah. out of the car, into the bathroom, back into the car and the various types of car seats uh, needed. Oh, so man. yeah, it's a lot, that's, but I love it. It's so much fun. Yeah, as someone who's being tasked with like um, dropping the kids off in the morning and stuff like that, it's like it's never like oh I wake up and we get into the car. It's it's a whole process of like oh my god, did you forget your lunchbox? Did you forget your backpack? Did you like go to the bathroom? And it's like ten minutes just to get in, get into the car. I'm just like oh yeah. my god, this is just well, gonna get worse. But <laughs> I'm glad that you're uh, also experiencing it. So um, I I can tell you that um, I have now been permanently. Um, uh, altered. Uh, so I yeah. will not be having any more children. I had about a month <laughs> after our daughter was born, I had my vasectomy and, um, yeah. highly recommend it. <laughs> um, it wasn't so bad. Okay. I'm, so, I'm, I'm going to have to start to look into that. I think soon yeah. enough, but yeah. yeah, we're trying to, we're trying to keep it at the four. We're trying to keep it at three, but then, you know, it, things happen. So yeah, things happen. Yeah. As I always All say, right. you were just practicing. So we're, we're getting it ready. <laughs> we're always practicing and stuff happens. So, yeah. All right, cool. Well, the first thing I was going to say, well, I mean, the reason we had you on here is we wanted to talk about harm reduction as a whole, right? And, you know, along with this. Oh, oh. hold on. My daughter, speaking of kids, got- my daughter has just barged <laughs> into my office. Do you want to say hello as long as you're here? <laughs> I guess she didn't get the memo. She didn't see the recording on sign on the. Ah, uh, we we always we always like that. The special guest. Hi, this is Mars. Hey, beautiful. Hey, beautiful. Hi. Say hello. Hi. She can't how hear are you. But... Oh, okay. That was almost like that was almost like a perfect like uh, like it was like planned, but it wasn't. Right. She <laughs> actually figured out how to open the door herself. So. 
Hey, um, the the, the timing is just the timing is just right. Yeah. So I was like, all right, we're talking about harm reduction, right? We're yeah. trying to talk about harm reduction. And then it's like, it's an interesting topic. We're talking about the kids first because it's like people don't realize that harm reduction is permeates all moments of our life, right? And including things like wearing a condom or getting a vasectomy or it's like these things are methods of harm reduction, right? Um, but I'll let you kind of jump in there and talk about that a little bit more. Sure. So I... I I think it was best put by uh, Dr. Kim Sue, who should invite on the show at some point. Um, she's awesome. I, I heard her speak first time we ever met in person. Um, I heard her talk about this sort of idea, uh, the difference between harm reduction, big H, big R, or harm reduction, small H, small R. And so starting with harm reduction, small H, small R, that's sort of like the 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 interventions the medical interventions so you know uh, using a new needle every time you inject um, or yeah. like providing pipes but harm reduction big H big R to me is more about looking at like why do we have these harms and and like what is the sort of like what's the like what's the sort of like more meta reason for this and and for for most of us um, we point to prohibition as the drug prohibition as sort of this this major cause and so i I don't like to think of uh harm reduction in terms of like the harms that drugs cause rather like the harms that prohibition has caused like because drugs are illegal and criminalized immense harm is um uh sort of inflicted on on the population and this is actually not equal harm um because socioeconomics and race ethnicity um, the location you live in, the state you live in, these are all things that impact the sort of degree of harm that prohibition has on you. So if you live in a state where possession is like heavily criminalized, like so what I was using, I lived in Florida, mm-hmm. possession of one pill that was a scheduled substance that wasn't prescribed to you was a felony in 2010 yeah. when I was using. And so the sort of my very existence at that time was a felony like every moment of my life i was committing a felony right so yeah but here i am today why well because i'm white um i come from an affluent family at the time that i was using i was enrolled in a a top university like um and so the times where i interacted with the criminal justice system i had sort of a unique set of advantages um, that I don't think would have been afforded to somebody who the only difference would have been that they they their skin may have been a different color um, or like the registration on their car could have been uh, expired. And like mine was always kept up to date because my parents took care of it. You know, like even I was yeah. using my parents were taking care of my car. So like there's all these advantages that I had. Right. So harm reduction to me is about thinking about the sort of wide systemic harms of the war on drugs and how it's been inflicted on society, on black and brown communities for the last 50 years. Um, and then today, how it's still sort of like has has caused unequal harm and then uh, creating interventions that seek to, to lessen some of those harms, but also at the same time advocating for an end to like the, the main driver of harm, which would be the, the law itself. Yeah. And it's one of those things, like, I mean, you said the last 50 years, but it's like, when we really look at the history, it's been like much, much longer than that. It's been there since like the beginning of, I mean, 
society as a whole, right? So even if we look at just like American history, we go back to like the Chinese who were kind of brought over for building like the railroads out west, right? And like the opium and everything that came along with that. And then prohibition, prohibition, capital P prohibition with alcohol and like what happened from that and Al Capone and et cetera, et cetera, the mobsters, like it never worked out good, right? And it was never a good idea to kind of like have these laws and stuff. It was never a good outcome. Nothing good came from it, right? Right. Yeah, no, it definitely goes, it goes back further. I, I sort of like yeah. categorize this phase of yeah. prohibition as being like sort of um, like it's, it's almost like we, we still see like generational impact of things mm-hmm. that happened like 50 years ago directly yeah. into this. Like, so people whose parents were impacted by this, like people whose grandparents, you know, people who, who are still, may still be alive uh, even from the sort of beginning of this phase of the the drug war, but I think you're right. Like the historical context is much wider. Yeah, and definitely, like I mean, like we see the disruptions in society and cultures and families, and then the ripple effects that occur from that, and then yeah, the you know the communities are destroyed from from all of this stuff. So, okay, talk about. I mean, like wh- one of the things again, like brought you. I wanted to bring you on because of your own lived experience, and if you want to describe some of that a little bit and and again some of the aspects of that aspect yeah sure um so i i grew up overseas um so i lived in europe for most of my childhood i moved over when i was in third grade and um so uh, alcohol use was much more like sort of socially acceptable um, among young people and so like even from a young age um when i lived in austria like you could be served wine uh with dinner as a as a young teenager um and so as we we lived in hungary for my entire time that i was in high school um my sort of like relationship with alcohol quickly like got out of hand and so like i recognized that and i started like pulled back um, and then I went to college and it was like a whole new world of like, I, I had never even um, smelled weed before I moved back mm. to the U.S. Because um, okay. it just wasn't a thing there. Right. And so um yeah. started to like use uh, drugs with my the group of friends that I settled into. Um, we, we would sit around and smoke cigarettes outside of the dorm. It was like the thing. Right. <sighs> And uh, drug use was really pervasive in that group. Um, but, you know, like weed acid shrooms ecstasy like those sorts of like cocaine like those sorts of drugs were like definitely around and um we we suffered a really big loss to our group um our freshman year one of our good friends um kelly um fell from a a balcony while she was trying to light a cigarette and and um the the her death like really impacted me and, and many others and um you know losing somebody like who, who's like has their whole life ahead of them. And like, I, I hadn't really ever lost anyone like that, like that close to me who was young. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I, I think the way that I, and, and it, my parents were still living overseas. So I was back in the United States. I was in Miami. I felt very like distant from them. My sister was in college in Boston. Um, so very like sort of isolated from, from everybody. Um, we were already using drugs and um, our dealer at the time uh, he used to come with like a fishing tackle box and it was like everything, yeah, yeah. you know, he was, he was yeah. very cool guy. And, you know, whenever yeah. he's like, Oh, you should try these. Like you're really depressed. Like these will make you feel better. Hmm. And so that was how I got introduced to, to opiates. And like, 
I just remember that two week two weeks into it, like having used them multiple times a day, and I started off like sort of orally taking yeah. like opiate pills, which then progressed to like crushing and snorting. Um, I liked how it made me feel nothing, and like nothing was better than being depressed. And like I had struggled with depression for uh, high school, and and it had been kind of an on and off thing for me. Yeah, and um. So, yeah, that's how I sort of, like, progressed into that world. Sorry, normally my phone's on silent, but I'll tell you about the hotline <laughs> later and why it's not on silent anymore, but that wasn't okay. the hotline. Okay. Um, so, I the thing about opiates was that, it, like, the apathy sort of transferred into my the rest of my life. So, it wasn't just, like, my emotional apathy, but it was, like, apathy towards school and work and things. And I was like, well, I got to, like, get this under control. Yeah. So I started, uh, I, I had used Adderall before. And so I started using Adderall again. Um, and, uh, that eventually progressed to meth because we would run out of Adderall and then meth was what was available. And so I would kind of go back yeah. and forth between those. Um, and that was great because it was like, all of a sudden I could function again. You know, I was like, I could still try to get through school and whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, the one sort of like, or the two primary side effects from that was not sleeping um, well, and so if right. after several days of like kind of being over amped, like, uh, starting to hallucinate and become paranoid and things like that. And then the other thing was that it used to give me like really bad anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, well, how do we solve anxiety? So I started <laughs> using benzos. Um, uh, yeah. so it was like opioids to dull the, dull the pain, uh, amphetamines to lift myself back up and then benzos yeah. to blunt the sort of over amp effects. And so right, I was right. in this sort of like drug using trifecta and, um, the Holy Trinity per se, the Holy Trinity. Yeah. And so yeah, like, I, yeah. I, I, you know, I kept that life up for, for more than two years. Um, yeah. and, uh, I thought I was handling it pretty well. Uh, my friends, a lot of them disagreed. And so you, you become more further isolated from folks, the sort of deeper you get in, like they're doing Coke, but like, Oh, you're doing opiates. Like, yeah, you know, it was like there's, a bigger deal, there's, right? There's there's judgment within it, right? There was judgment, right? Even from a group yeah. of people that are also doing drugs, right? Yeah. So, like, it, it's very common in our society. It's like everybody does drugs in some form. Like, you know, my favorite drug is caffeine now, <laughs> yep. but like that person will look down on the person who's doing coke, which is just like a stronger stimulant, right? So, yeah. Um, at least I'm not doing this, right? At least I'm right. not doing that, right? right. It's always, it's always something better, right? And so once yeah. you get to the sort of end of the line, right, where you're where you're doing the most extreme thing from a societal standpoint, it's it can be pretty lonely, um, yeah, and isolating. And so, sort of like chain of events, um, I had I had dropped a lot of classes over the last like two years of school, so I was like really far behind when I was supposed to graduate. Yeah. But the school like let me walk in graduation with my friends. Okay. Um, yeah. even though I was like, I think I was 18 credits behind at that point. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so I was like, like a over a full semester. Yeah yeah. 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 Um, but they let me walk and I got my like empty diploma, like everybody else, except I wasn't going to get one in the mail in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah. and my whole family came down to visit, uh, my, my parents, my grandparents, my uncle and his boyfriend, uh, my sister. And, um, it was the first time they had like seen me in person in about six months. And like that six months had been a big escalation for me. And, um, like I was 150 pounds, uh, at okay. that point. So yeah. I'd lost a lot of weight. I, you know, I wasn't eating, I was eating like one meal a day. Um, 
And my uncle, um, who is a gay man, lives in New York City, has a lot of friends that have used drugs, um, had have had meth problem, like a meth uh, uh, relationship with meth before. Um, he basically was like, Ted's my parents, like, Stephen has a drug problem and like, you guys need to get him help because he, this is, and my oh, parents wow. were like, yeah, what? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. you know, they were just like, cause it's me. Right. And like, so, so people have in their mind, like what, what that would look. And I didn't look like that. You know, that, that's right, not, right, right. that wasn't the sort of stereotype. So, um, uh, they didn't clue me in while I was there, while they were there, that this was happening. But a few months later I walked into like a quasi intervention, um, and I knew it was an intervention because uh, when I got there, it was my mom, dad, and sister. And like when I walked through the door, nobody stood up Yikes. when I came in to hug me. And I was like, this is weird. And then I was like, yeah, the wheels are turning. And I'm like, oh, this is like, and, and I was, I was tired and like, I, yeah. I was ready. Like I felt like I derailed a lot and like I, so I accepted it and, and um, went to rehab and, um, yeah, that's a whole nother story, but the treatment world, um, was yeah. traumatizing in its own way. Um, so like introduced like new trauma, uh, to my life that I hadn't had before. Um, so like the, the sort of trauma of being institutionalized, um, and, uh, some of the things that you, you learn in, in treatment, um, and you're, that you're taught and that you're, that are sort of like pushed into your mind about shame and, you know, uh, a lot of like negative thinking. Um, I was diagnosed in 15 minutes with narcissistic personality disorder. Ugh, yikes. Um, in a 15 minute evaluation when I first got yeah. to rehab. And the reason for that was that she asked me what I did for a living. And I said, well, I'm a student, but I also am on the Coconut Grove Village Council. I was the youngest person ever elected to the village. I got elected while I was using um, to the village council. So she, she writes down delusions of grandeur. Oh my goodness. Di- this was a re- like, and I was telling her the truth about what I said. I, yeah, I was on the, yeah, yeah, yeah. come on. The, I, ju- I just basically resigned to come here. And she's looking at me. I'm like this 20 year old kid who's here for like meth and opiates. And I'm telling her that I'm a, like a village council member and stuff. And so she diagnoses me with like, she could have Googled it and like, yeah, it was yeah, very yeah. easy to verify. So yeah. I spent the next, I spent the next six weeks thinking like oh man i'm a i have a narcissistic personality disorder this is like really serious and i was like reading about it and i'm like this doesn't really feel like sound like me like i feel like i'm a pretty empathetic no, right. person and but like it made me hate myself for like and then i got to my first like psychologist outside of in my outpatient program and i told him the story and he's like what <laughs> he's yeah. like People, you, he's like if you're worried that you have narcissistic personality disorder there's a good chance that you probably don't have it yeah yeah. <laughs> you know and so like it was just that it was that sort of thing right it was like yeah yeah um, for anybody who's like a psychiatrist or therapist or doc or anybody doing that like this is why you don't diagnose personality disorders in 15 minute visits yes <laughs> like it 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 hurt a lot like it it yeah it really like it was on my mind like the entire time i was in rehab yeah off of my first 15 minute assessment by the counselor that was there uh, yeah yeah yeah. I'm sorry that happened. That's terrible. Yeah. So like, and again, like I was at like what would be considered like a very high end treatment facility. Like, like it's publicly known like that Catherine Zeta Jones was there like a few weeks okay. before me. Like it was that kind of place. Right. And like, yeah, and this yeah. was the standard of care. Hmm. And then the other part was that like within five years, most of the people that I cared about had died. Yeah. 
And so to me, I was like, wow, like that is like, if this is the best for the best, like, like this is considered the best and like everybody's dying still, like, what are we doing here? Um, right. And this is sort of like in the, the sort of like pre Suboxone era, at least in rehabs. Yeah. Um, so medication was really focused on, and most places didn't prescribe medication at all. But this place was like considered a dual diagnosis hospital. And so yeah. my mental health stuff, I ended up getting like some medication, um, but nothing for my opiate use disorder. Hmm. Which we know is trouble. I mean, which we right. know is like not standard of care, essentially. But um, so that was that. And then like, I mean, you and then you said you're an overdose survivor as well. Um, if you mind, don't mind talking about that a little bit. Yeah. So I. Um, I, I was never given naloxone, um, but I, I've reflected on a couple of incidents that occurred where, um, like knowing what I know now as a paramedic and, and like thinking about sort of how I presented, um, I I had two times that I, I can think back to where I woke up on the floor and I had a really bad headache. And like really bad, like, like a, like an excruciatingly bad headache and felt disoriented and, and like, and off. And, um, I was a snorter, right? So I, I, I would sniff, uh, opiates. And, um, so unlike injecting where you sort of have this like very quick reaction, uh, yeah. uh, insufflation can cause more of like an arc, uh, mm-hmm. in your, in like, in your use, like you, you can, you can sort of feel it ramping up and then, and then like you sort of peak and then come down. So my sort of hypothesis is that because like the intention with using opiates is never to like pass out. Right. Like you want to stay like the whole point is to one, get out of withdrawal two to like stay present so you can actually yeah. enjoy what you're feeling. And I also didn't use benzos to make me pass out. I, I was only taking mostly Klonopin, um, okay. enough to dull the chest pain from the Adderall because my, my idea was like, well, if I'm using Adderall, why would I use benzos to like knock me out? I'm trying to, I'm trying to stay up. Yeah. So, um, my feeling is that I overdid it those two times and that I was probably on the, on the floor for some time where I was in like a respiratory depression, um, where I, where I, my breathing must have slowed because when I woke up, I, I, I was like the, the headache and the, the confusion now thinking back to it, like, I'm pretty sure that that was like a result of hypoxia because it yeah. really was the only thing I can think of. I wasn't mixing anything out. Right. And like, one of the things I teach about overdose to folks is that your body, um, plays a role in your susceptibility in overdose to, uh, like fatal overdose because of sort of like how long you can be in respiratory depression or respiratory arrest before you go into cardiac arrest. So for me, I was a 20 year old, otherwise healthy, strong heart, you know, wasn't sick, you know? And so I, I had some resilience, I would think to be able to withstand being in like a a prolonged respiratory depression. Um, and so I actually ended up getting diagnosed with sleep apnea later on. Um, oh, and I have right. central, I have central sleep apnea, not, um, obstructive. obstructive. Yeah. Yeah. And so the sort of theory is that, that I could have done some damage, um, 
to receptors. And so when I sleep, I, I stop breathing like bad, it's severe, 128 disturbances an hour was from my test. Oh, wow. okay. So, yeah. um, yeah, it's pretty severe. Um, so, so that's sort of how I tied that together. And I didn't really realize that until many, many years after, like I, you know, it's one thing when you go out and someone Narcan's you and you wake and like the ambulance is there, but I always used alone. So yeah. like I, I was always in a, in a solo situation. I was poly substance use, using alone, always escalating my dose, um, basically doing all the things I try to teach people not to do. Like <laughs> I did. Right, and right. so like, I, I consider myself a survivor of that because I think that like those were like having known what I know about overdose now and how people can be so on the brink of death and then like come out of it. Like I have to think that I was very lucky in those situations yeah. to, to be alive. Yeah. Um, cause I, yeah. Cause I think like when, you know, we hear this as like nobody, you know, starts to use, and then with the idea like, oh, I'm planning to overdose, right? right. Um, nobody's trying to do that. I, know, I mean, some people are, but that's a whole different story. Um, but, you know, in these situations, like, there's a lot of times where people are like, oh, my God, I, I overdosed. And I didn't even realize it. And then, like like you're saying, like, you know, the, the using, using alone is, is where the trouble really comes, right? And we saw this a lot in the last couple of years during COVID when everybody was forced to isolate a lot more, right? And, and you don't have that help that don't have that person who can reach out to help out any which way that's possible. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's why we started the hotline. Um, yeah. interviews alone hotline. And so a lot of that comes from my, you know, my involvement in that comes from both my personal sort of experience with always using alone. Um, sort of the opposite of the idea of like never use alone. I was always use alone. Um, yeah. and then also this idea of like, like as a paramedic, so many of the overdoses, the fatal overdoses that I responded to, people were close by, like when that happened. Mm. Like it would be a 22 year old that was home from detox, overdosed in his ba- in the bathroom. And mom is three doors down in the living room watching TV, doesn't know he's using, goes to check, goes to go to the bathroom herself and finds her son dead in the bathroom. Right. And so, right. To me, it was like, it's so tragic that like, that's how so many people die. And so with the, with the idea of the hotline, so never use alone is like the national hotline for people who use drugs. They can call an operator will activate EMS for them. Um, if they become unresponsive, I run the Massachusetts line, which is called the Massachusetts overdose prevention helpline, very similar service. Um, we're just more focused in, in providing services in Massachusetts, um, I am an operator on uh, this mm-hmm. line, um, and I took a call this morning at six o'clock this morning. Like yeah. so, um, that person had we not been there for them would have used alone. Um, they didn't overdose this time, but this person has overdosed in the past on the hotline, and they've been saved yeah. twice by it. Um, so which is, like, yeah. which is amazing, right? So like, yes, you, yes, like, yes. yeah. Anyway, it's just like a pretty. Um, it's it's heavily underutilized. Um, yeah, we could be taking a lot more calls, but it takes like it takes a special kind of like confidence to like pick up the phone and call the hotline and like trust that you're not gonna like get a police sting or like you know there, there's all these like fears around it. But like we have actual we have like between us and the National Memories Alone Line, we've had over a hundred overdoses. Yeah, um, and those so, are hundred lives you know potentially saved, right? Yeah, from that. yeah. 
Talk about that. I mean, like you, you touched on it a little bit. Is so we're we're seeing this kind of shift. I would say with people saying, okay, we're we're not going to criminalize, right? We're not going to throw you in jail, right? We're going to do this because we don't want you to die. And and whenever I talk about whenever I talk about harm reduction, I think that's the goal. Is like we're just not wanting people to die, right? We're doing everything so that people don't die. Um, talk about that a little bit, like that shift that's been there for where people are saying, we're not trying to punish you. We just want you to be safe. Yeah. So it's interesting. So there, there's like pros to, to that. There's also some like sort of things to be, to be mindful of. Um, I like to start by saying like, not all substance use is disordered. Yeah. Which is a really important distinction. So like mm-hmm. everybody who calls our hotline does not have a substance use disorder. Right. People use substances occasionally. Um, actually the, the person I called this morning uses like once a day, which is really rare for someone who's injecting fentanyl, right. To use only one time a day is like incredibly, we would think is incredibly rare, but that's how this person lives their life. Right. And so, uh, and often stops for weeks at a time. Right. So that person's at very high risk of overdose because they have no tolerance ever, but they don't actually have a substance use disorder. Right. Right. So like, because they're, infrequently you know so uh we have people call the hotline who like recreationally use cocaine mm-hmm. because they're afraid that there could be fentanyl in their cocaine yeah which we know happens um it's really important to kind of make that distinction for people right because there's so much bs that's out in the world where it's like you know i think we're both kind of seeing that there was like some interaction with with ryan marino dr Marion marino like the other day about like somebody being like well if somebody's using heroin like they're obviously infringing on the rights of children and destroying their family because they're using heroin i was like no not necessarily right like people can use heroin people can use fentanyl people can use cocaine totally recreationally and not having it be a problem like that's the aspect and like when people you know throw around the term addict right? I I hate the word addict. I don't like the word addict Um, because it's addiction is not necessarily just using a substance. It's the behaviors and everything that goes along with it, right? Like, are you, are you, are you maintaining the use despite negative outcomes? Um, Are you kind of like uprooting your life so that you can support this, this use? Like that's where the addiction world come or addiction word comes from versus like, oh, I, use heroin every once in a while without any problems and nobody gets hurt and I do fine. And I, you know, go on with my life and that's not a use disorder. Right. Well, and and I think that like what we're going to see to answer your original question is that there's like this shift from like criminalization of substance use to mm-hmm. the medicalization of it. And so, which I, it, it's better um, because I don't want people to be in jail. Uh, right. But it also kind of like, if the opposite of arrest is treatment, like that's like a sort of false, uh, like, right. Not everybody needs treatment, right? Nobody needs to be arrested, but not everybody needs treatment who isn't arrested, who's using drugs. Right. And so if, if law enforcement, as they sort of like shift their, like their perspective from like, we're going to arrest everybody to we're going to treat everybody. Like if you're coercing people into treatment, instead of arresting them, like yeah. coerced treatment is also traumatizing. Correct. Yep. You know, and, and, it's just, and, it's and thing, can right? make people less safe. Yeah. Talk about that part. Cause I think we, 
I, I know we both know like the dangers and and you kind of alluded it to it alluded to it a bit that like um the people who are highest risk for overdose are the people who are kind of in treatment or coming back from treatment facilities talk about that a little bit about why why that is yeah so so tolerance is really important it mm-hmm. always has been it's been important going way back that like when when you have tolerance that is a protective uh sort of protective to um, fluctuations in the potency of your supply. Yeah. In the, in the sort of like heroin era with fentanyl, um, that fluctuation could potentially, you could sort of get through that fluctuation depending on your, your like daily use. Um, With fentanyl, we have such varying degrees of potency and that potency variation is from bag to bag. So to, to bring you back to like 2015, for example, yeah, when heroin was still the dominant sort of like opioid on the market, uh, if you bought a bundle from somebody, so like 10 bags, and you used bag one and bag one was like, you know, you're like, okay, this this seems fine. Like there was a good chance you could use the that entire bundle without like risk of overdose from like individual bags. And yep. so like... Uh, the same went for like in, in Western Mass, we have stamps on our bags like the right now, the, like there's the Disney stamp or the Rolls Royce stamp or whatever. So you knew that like you were kind of getting the same thing, like because the variation would be would be minute. With fentanyl, the problem is that because it's so and, and Ryan talked about this in, in your podcast, because it's so yeah. difficult to, to, to dose. Um, you can have varying sort of like concentrations uh, between bags and within bags. So yeah. sometimes people will do like half a bag and be okay. But the second half of the bag is actually so much more potent. Like mm-hmm. that is a totally different world to, to live in. Like where you could, you could buy 10 bags with the same 10 stamps and each bag is going to be a fully different experience. And like, I like to equate that to coffee, right? So like, imagine yeah. you had 10 cups of coffee in front of you and three of them are decaf you know, two of them were so strong, they would give you palpitations and like the other five were normal. Like, and all of a sudden you drink the two that are going to give you palpitations. And now it's like, you're having a heart attack. Like, right. Like, yep. like yeah. that would be a pretty scary situation. Like I know when I drink one of these coffee drinks, it literally says on here, there's 175 yep. milligrams of natural caffeine, uh, of espresso. Yeah. And like, I know like that I can handle 175 milligrams. Uh, I can handle three of these in a day, you know, (laughs) and like, I could do that without some of the negative side effects of, of overuse of caffeine. So like sweaty, uh, like nausea, I get nauseous when I have too much caffeine, you know? And like, I know, I know like what I'm getting here. And that's just like, that's just not the case with drugs, um, from the, from the sort of like, you know, illicit market or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah, and I I used always kind of like the McDonald's analogy, right? Is that you know McDonald's over here in Virginia, McDonald's over there in Massachusetts, McDonald's in California, the Big Mac is the same, right? right. You you know exactly what you're going to be getting, and and everything else, it's the wild wild west, right? You don't know what it's going to be, and that's unfortunately where the danger comes in because you know you come back from you know again these kind of a lot of times these forced treatment centers, right? People go to a rehab or they go to a detox and we hear this story is way too many times, right? Buddy comes along as like, Hey, we got you out of detox. Here's let's celebrate. Right. And then that's where the trouble comes in. And that's where the overdose kind of comes in. Your tolerance has kind of gone down because you've been without it for a bit and then you get hit with it and boom, right. The trouble, trouble comes. 
Right. And, and to stick with your McDonald's analogy, you know, say that all of a sudden we had a, someone in uh, New York and someone in, in D.C. who got sick after eating a Big Mac. The FDA yeah. comes in and says, oh, the lettuce on the Big Mac has E. coli. And guess yeah. what? All the lettuce in the country that that supplies McDonald's gets pulled off the shelf yeah. because two people got sick. Mm-hmm. You know, when we have these E. coli outbreaks in lettuce, like three people die in the U.S., which is tragic, right? But right, then they right. pull it all off and they solve the problem. Like we have 100,000 people dying from drug overdose from the f- same exact issue, from a supply that is is potent and dangerous. Yet yeah. because of stigma, like we, we like don't have any like consumer protection for people who use drugs. Yeah. Um, so sticking on this idea of like the criminalization and treatment thing, mm-hmm. um, we have to work to, to, to like bring nuance to the drug conversation. And I think that we for so long have been conditioned mostly by law enforcement that this is like good, a fight of good and evil, like yeah. bad, good drugs, bad, you know, drug dealers, bad people who use drugs are criminals. Like, it's very black. It's very black and white, right? And so, yeah. like, without having nuance, like, we can't have real conversations. Like, yeah. we can't say, like, okay, well, heroin is this, and like, this is like what you can do to be more safe while using it, because we're so caught up. Like, even my kids, my high schoolers, like, the education they get still on d- drugs is the same education that I got twenty years ago. Yeah, that same education that was that led me to not know that using a loan could have been it's a fatal mistake. Right. right? Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. And I think you were, you were kind of saying it too, like when black and white too, like, I mean, we can use that as, you know, just racially as well right. too. Right. Again, that's a whole other, again, a whole other discussion that comes along with it. Um, and it's interesting too, like along with that, that's where we hear a lot of this kind of feedback pushback with like the whole opioid crisis per se is that like, well, now that it's like white people in the suburb that are dying from this, right. White housewives in the suburbs that are dying from this. Now it's become an issue versus, you know, cocaine, crack, et cetera, anything before then, then it wasn't necessarily a problem. Heroin, right. Especially too, because heroin was primarily a lot of times like a inner city black Brown kind of thing. Right. So whole other topic discussion, but (laughs) yeah, that, yeah, that's that's there. Talk about um, so Narcan. I know. Let's talk about Narcan. I know you you had a fun little story, a fun little you know fight to kind of get your get your license plate. Talk about that a little bit, and then kind of pull that into like Narcan its importance. Yeah. So uh, I I uh, had a little brief battle with the with the DMV about um, yeah. a custom vanity plate that said Narcan on it. Um, and I got the idea to do it actually because I saw like a Boston Globe story about the different vanity plates that had been approved in the previous year. And I saw that they approved Botox and Windex. <laughs> and okay. I was like, those are brand brand names. I was like, yeah. that's interesting. And like Botox, like it's a medication, you know? And it was, I was like, yeah. well, why can't I get Narcan? So I applied for it. Um, and then I got a letter in the mail saying that it had been rejected. Um, and they like, they like send you like a form letter where they, where they select, I guess, whoever the person is that does the, like, does the, the, the vetting selects a reason why they refuse it. And what they wrote in the refusal was that it was vulgar. And I was like, so like, I, of course, and, and, oh, the thing that I have to just point out too, when you 
put in for a vanity plate, they actually make you write a couple sentences about like why the why, like why you want okay. that plate, what your justification is. So, yeah. you know, me being me, I wrote like about my story and like, you know, that I've, I've reversed hundreds of overdoses like with Narcan. I've saved lives. It saved the lives of my friends. Like it's an important public yeah. health tool. I'm an overdose researcher. Like I, I gave like a compelling, it was a compelling three sentences. Let me tell you. <laughs> so, um, so I called them out on Twitter and yeah. um, of course our, our network is awesome. Yeah. And so they amplified it. And um, a few days, uh, they, they actually responded to the tweet, their, their, their Twitter, uh, the RMV's nice, Twitter. Okay. And they were like, we're looking into this and we'll get back to you soon. <laughs> I was like, okay, sure. So I, I was like, not sure what was going to come from it. So um, a few days later, I get like a phone call from someone high up at the, the RMV telling me that they had reversed their decision and that they'd be granting me the plate. Um, and awesome. so I posted that, which then got the attention of the of the media, and so it turned into a whole story. And Boston Globe yeah. picked it up, and um, yeah. So, so Narcan is like really important in this whole Narcan yep. and naloxone is really important in this whole equation. Um, I I think it's gotten more important because of fentanyl, and like there's a few reasons for that. So number one is that because fentanyl is more potent, people are more likely to overdose from it, and so like it's great that bystanders can reverse. Um, overdoses so if you asked me in 2015 like who were the primary responders to overdose i would have told you that it was ems and police and fire yeah today that we are not the first responders anymore the primary responders to overdose are people who use drugs yeah using together reviving each other when needed etc and we're not involved in a lot of it as ems mm -hmm. providers right so it's important to get into people's hands the the uh other reason is that I feel that because fentanyl uh, causes overdose and it happens so quickly, that time is of the of the essence. And so, yeah. like not being able to like sort of reverse that in the moment, like you're you're starting a uh, you're starting a timer as to like how long it's going to take us to get there. And what I can tell you is, as a uh, as a paramedic, I always felt like we were getting there really fast because. We are, we hear the tones, we rush to the ambulance, we put the lights on and like we drive quickly to the scene, right? It feels like it's happening really fast because our adrenaline's up. Yeah. When you are the person that's there with somebody who's overdosing or you're on the phone, like for me as a hotline operator, me yeah. sitting there on the phone with somebody who's not breathing while I'm waiting, it feels like an eternity. Oh yeah. And, um, like, so I, I like the option of that people who could see or be near an overdose. It's nice for them to be able to do something. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, rescue breathing is like really important. I, I want to make sure that like, that's not like de-emphasize because, you know, Narcan reverses the sort of mechanical issue of ventilation. So the fact that people are not, are not mechanically breathing in and out, um, but it takes time. Right. And so for the time that it takes to work, they're still not breathing. And so yep. you need to breathe for them. Um, theoretically, you don't actually even like, I, I also want to make sure people know that like, if you're in a situation where someone's overdosing and you don't have Narcan, that's okay. You can still provide rescue breaths and keep somebody alive. Yeah. Um, many of the like sort of drug consumption sites around the world, not here, really in the U S like they don't even give people Narcan during an overdose. They just, they just mm -hmm. breathe for them until they kind of come out of it. 
So like Narcan's great. It's a tool to quickly sort of like reverse the impact and get somebody breathing on their own again. But yeah. as a bystander, you have a you have a mouth and lungs. If you feel weird putting your mouth on somebody, use your shirt. Yeah. If you don't yeah, have another adjunct. Yeah, I was gonna say it's important for people to like understand that like it's not the medicine, not the not the opioid that's killing the people, right? It's not right. that it is it is the respiratory depression, it is the stopping of the breathing. Right. right. That's what people that's what happens in an overdose. That's how people die from that is they stop breathing. So if you're able to, like you're saying, provide those breaths in there, like that will keep them alive. And that's the main thing. So it's not, you know, no matter how much they're like the the opioid is not going to like kill them per se. Right. I, I think people like when we think about antidotes mm-hmm. um, for like, and and like there's a whole lot of different types of antidotes for a whole lot of different types of things. Right. Um, people think of antidotes as being like neutralizing agents that like yeah. go in and they neutralize whatever it is that's causing the effect. That's actually not what Narcan is. No, you know, Narcan doesn't attack fentanyl. Like, uh, <laughs> You know, it it literally unseats it from receptors and then sits on the receptors for a, a amount of time in order to sort of yeah. reverse the effects, right? So yeah. when people – I don't want people to think like that Narcan is 100% necessary in an overdose to save somebody because mm-hmm. really what they need is someone to breathe for them until they can breathe yeah. on their own again, whether it's because Narcan's helped them breathe on their own again or because the drug is worn off. Um, yeah. we're lucky with fentanyl, like fentanyl is very short acting. And so I was finding like towards the end of my EMS, like active EMS career, I was giving less and less Narcan and just focusing on bagging people. Um, yeah. and they would wake up a lot less sick and a lot, a lot happier. Yeah. Um, so like Narcan is super, super important. It's a super important intervention to like give people a tool to turn things around faster. And so that like, if you're not confident with delivering rescue breaths, that like you won't have to do it for as long, but mm-hmm. I don't want people to just like think that that's the only thing that that you should do. Like breathing is really really important. Um, you can yep. give someone Narcan and sit there and watch them for four minutes, and they could go into cardiac arrest in that four minutes if you haven't been providing rescue breaths. Just because yeah. you gave them yeah. the Narcan doesn't mean that that's necessarily going to to reverse the the hypoventilation fast enough, right? So Narcan it's, plus it's rescue like breaths. It's not like in the movies, right? It's not Pulp right. Fiction where you where you give right. them the, you know, and then, then all of a sudden they wake up and like they're back from the dead, right? Right. No, you gotta gotta do the part two. Part two, yeah. Which I like to call part one because <laughs> right, right. people used to think like uh, police officers and firefighters should be on scene with me are like, why aren't you giving them more narcan? I'm like, just chill. I got this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, guys. Yeah. What are so if you had like a message for people. Not like me, but people on the medical side of stuff, people who I, I like to think I'm, I kind of have an idea of what's going on, but people who are still like in the old school way of thinking, right? So the old school of like, you know, drugs are bad and anybody who does this should be like in jail and like it's addicts and blah, 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 blah. What message do you want to like give them? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think the beauty of harm reduction is that it like acknowledges that the person is using substances and then it's like, well, what else can we do like to help? And like, Mm -hmm. I feel like in a medical profession, like especially like, I see this a lot in like therapy, like in the sort of like therapy world that like people like don't want to work with people who are still actively using. 
Like you need yeah. to be abstinent in order to then get treatment. And like, can you think of any other condition where you have to be sort of like by definition cured already in order to then receive treatment? Right. So it's like, for example, I take, I always use this example. I take medication for my blood pressure. Yeah. I need to work on my diet and I need to exercise to bring my, and I need to like lower my stress amount to bring my, but if my doctor said to me, like, as soon as you exercise and control your diet and you stop being so stressed and you get your blood pressure down, then we'll give you a blood pressure medication. Like right. that makes no, that makes no sense. Right. Yeah. Like we can do interventions for people that we know work uh, without them having this expectation of having stopped using like mm -hmm. the sort of treatment world and in the way that it's structured, like for me to go to rehab, for example, yeah. in order for me to get treatment, I had to commit to stopping drugs on the, the, the day that I got there. Yeah. And, and if I were to use drugs somehow while I was there, which I did see somebody use, uh, they got kicked out. Yep. And so it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. No, it's like you're kicking somebody out for doing the thing that you want them to get help with. Right. Does that right. make sense? No, makes yeah. no sense. So, um, harm reduction, like we're, we're, we're definitely, uh, our hands are tied in this country a lot. So like, to me, like supervised consumption sites are like a perfect example of like accepting people into this sort of world of care and services while they're doing the thing that is sort of like from the medical standpoint is the thing that like is causing some harm to them. Yeah. But like, there's so much else we could be doing for people in that moment. Like, uh, like if you can help somebody get a primary care provider or go to the dentist, um, or start doing therapy, like why should I lose my best coping skill, which is drug use so that I can get therapy? Like, why can't I start therapy and start talking to you while I'm still using? So you can teach me how to like reduce my reliance on like, cause from, this is not everybody, but for me, right. drugs were were primarily a coping skill, like to cope yeah. with depression yeah. and antidepressants worked very badly for me. I tried a lot of different mm -hmm. ones. They, they didn't, they didn't do the job the way I needed them to. And I needed to learn better coping skills. And yeah. so like, but I was forced to learn these coping skills while I had lost my one crutch to get through it. And so my first two years of recovery, I was incredibly depressed. Like, yeah, sleep on the couch all day, kind of depressed 18 hours mm -hmm. a day. I was asleep for the first two years of recovery. Yeah. You know, so it, yeah, no, that would be my message is like, take people as they are. And, and like your job is not to sort of like dictate to them what they're doing with their life. Your job is to offer options and tools that can like make them safer make them healthier um, and help them sort of, if, if, there's if their concern is of their like degree of substance use, then help them to find ways to reduce their reliance on that substance use. And in the process, yeah. like stay safe, refer them to our hotline, you know, yeah. help them get involved with the syringe program. Like there's so much we can do for people in the moment and harm reduction. Like we can help like treatment. The sort of treatment binary is that we can help you on day one that you're ready to stop use that you're going to stop using harm reduction says like, we can help you on day one that you start using yep. and that 
whenever you decide to change your relationship with drugs, like you've had tools along the way, like you've managed to go this time without contracting HIV or hepatitis C. So it's one less thing that we have to sort of like treat then on the back end. Um, you know, you have been safe for overdose, so we haven't lost you to an overdose. Like right. we have treated your wounds, so you didn't lose your arm. Like these are all things that like make people healthier and safer. It's really, to me, it's like, the thing I struggle with is like, to me, it's just such a no brainer. It's, it's compassion. It's medical. It's what we do, like why we become medical professionals. Yeah. Yeah. To help Abs people. Ab absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And it's, it's that aspect where, and again, like I always come back to it, it's like, we just don't want people to die. And if you're not providing that, like, then you're saying it's okay. It's okay for you to die. Like your life is, doesn't matter as much. Or your your life matters less if you if you're not able to meet the people where they're at. And I think just by nature, humans are kind of oppositional to an extent, right? When somebody tells us not to do something, we're going to want to do it. Versus, you know, how do we make changes with people, or how do we get them there? Is to like work with them, right? To kind of say like, well, what can we do to get to this next point, whatever it may be, right? Yeah, that's how we ultimately affect kind of change. So. Let's jump into some of these questions that we got from online. So Muhammad Adil, he's another, I think another addictions psychiatrist out there, goes, thoughts on harm reduction implicating drug use is intrinsically harmful um, or as intrinsically harmful that drugs are harmful. Is there another term that we could use instead of harm reduction? I know we touched on it a little bit, but. Yeah, I I, I, I like the idea of like risk reduction um, because yeah. it, it, it looks at it more like there are risks like because there is risk associated with a lot of stuff that we do like for example yeah. riding a motorcycle like there are risks you know it, like we don't look at riding a motorcycle as as harmful in and of itself but there are risks of harm mm -hmm. that can happen like you can ride a motorcycle your entire life and never experience harm right, right. you could ride a motorcycle and on day 1 you can get hit by a car and get injured or killed right yeah drugs are similar Right. So yep. like um, I think looking at it less is that like the, like there's this there's this sense that drug like because it's, it's really interesting too like when you think about opioids versus like NSAIDs for pain management. Right. Yeah. Like NSAIDs cause a lot of harm to people's bodies. Oh, yeah. Right. Like Tylenol, its impact on the liver and like, you know, the impact on kidneys and the heart of, of Advil. Like and and we've decided to, that for people, that's the better option. And it not one, it doesn't do a great job of managing their pain and letting them live like a normal life. And and two, it actually causes like real physical harm to people. Whereas opioids, okay, there's this sort of like risk of uh, dependency or misuse, which again, a little bit gray on how we define these things, right? And then sure. on top of that, like there's a risk of potentially a risk of overdose, but with pharmaceuticals taken sort of like correctly, the risk is much as low. But like opioids don't really, as long as you're like can keep your bowels moving, like, you know, opioids don't yeah. cause a whole lot of damage to your body, right? So, right, we have to look and say like, how do we manage the sort of like risks associated? Like, you have a risk of like severe constipation with opioids, right? So, what do we do yeah. for people? We give them like Metamucil and tell them to drink some prune juice, and you know, like that's how we 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 deal with that risk, right? So, um. I think as humans, we do a really terrible job in general of, um, of like assessing risk. Um, like for example, most people are more afraid of sharks 
than they are of bees or mosquitoes, mm-hmm. right? But what caused more deaths and harm, sharks or bees or mosquitoes, right? Yeah. So, yep. like, uh, I'm the type of person, like, I live near the ocean. I go swimming all the time. Everyone's like, are you afraid of sharks? Like, there's so many sharks in Cape Cod. I'm <laughs> like, I'm afraid of driving to the beach. That's right. You know, That's like much more dangerous, yep. much more dangerous. Like I, I can swim quite well. And like, I have a tourniquet in my beach bag. So if a shark bites my leg, at least I can try to save myself <laughs> or save yeah. someone else. Like, but like someone could have had 10 beers at lunch. And while I'm on my way to the beach, they blow a stop. They blow the stop sign and T-bone me. And there's nothing I can do to protect right. myself from that moment. Right. I have a seatbelt on, I have airbags, I drive a car that has a good safety rate, et cetera, right? I've done these like things, but like risk is everywhere. And so um I I like this idea of sort of like risk, risk assessment as like part of it. I think we're gonna have a really hard time breaking away from harm reduction as the like because now it's becoming so like uh, acceptable as a term. Yeah. Um it's going to be hard to, to move away from that. I like, like I said on Twitter, I like to like sort of reframe it that like a lot of the harms of drug use are actually a result of prohibition. So kind of turning it back yep. around that, like it's not drug harm that we're reducing it's prohibition harm. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And I, I think that kind of going back to like the Tylenol example, like you can buy that in bulk at Costco, right? And, yeah. 500 in a bottle. Yeah. And the majority, again, like when I have my psychiatrist hat on, my main stuff is like, we we see more Tylenol overdoses for people than anything else, right? Yeah. So that's a thing that we have to worry about too. Another question we got was, is there a worry that harm reduction overlooks the ability of addicts, again, I don't like the word addicts, yeah. um, to, to moderate their substance use? Uh, what do you think about that? So that people, it sounds like people are unable to control how much they use. I guess that's my, I I think a lot of that is super independent of like Mm -hmm. the interventions that we offer. Like, like interventions are more designed so that individual use events are safer, like as they're happening. And so like, Mm -hmm. because we give somebody 10 syringes, doesn't mean they're going to use 10 times in one day or like they're going to use the amount they're going to use over the time that they're going to use it because there's other factors like how much it costs or what their tolerance is or what they enjoy or all these other, like the, the events that happen in their day. Like if I had a bad day, I was using a lot more than days I was having a, a, a normal day. Right. Like, so like those events and the other factors, uh, the number one factor that moderated my use was like my financial situation. Yeah. Like if I, if I ran out of money, like if I ran out of money, I, had to reduce what I was doing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so like, to me, like that's the big moderator and like, um, the, the sort of idea that like, because we give people free syringes or like free pipes, like that, that, that they would have spent the money on acquiring those things is just doesn't really play out in the evidence. Like they're just going to reuse, um, they're going to share the one pipe that they and their friend have. And so like by sharing, if you have cracked lips, like you have the risk of spreading hepatitis C to somebody or like COVID or whatever, right. Instead of using your own pipe, um, or you're going to reuse your, your syringe, which puts you at higher risk for infection and et cetera. Right. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't think we can like, and and the other thing too, is that like harm reduction is so underutilized in general Mm -hmm. 
by the drug using population because of stigma and because some people don't even know that like they have the option to access a program like this. Yeah. Um, we, we, we kind of don't do the best job of like accessing the average person who uses drugs in their home. Like, and there's a lot of reasons for that. We could, we could get into it another time maybe, but like um, where the harm reduction program was in the city that I lived with, it was like right downtown. And like, if I yeah. parked my car out front of there, like how am I, I, I don't want my boss to see me going in there. Yeah. Like, so like thinking about how we, we cite these things or like making mail, mail order more accessible where you could order from like the privacy. Cause privacy is really important in a world where people are super stigmatized. Yeah. Um, that's one thing I love about our hotlines, like super private, super confidential. Nobody has to know yeah. you called. Um, the hotlines have had uh, A-list celebrities, uh, athletes, like, et cetera, call the, call the lines. And like, they love the fact that it's anonymous, you know, because yeah. they can actually use safely. Um, yeah. So, but they're nervous. Right. So. Yeah. What, I mean, that's, you brought up an interesting point was like, again, there's, I, and I've had this experience as well where people, you know, again, when we talk about like buprenorphine, suboxone kind of like being quote unquote misused. And a lot of time it's because somebody's diverting it to somebody who needs it, right? Somebody is getting a prescription, then they're able to kind of give it to a buddy who may need it. And that's, again, quote unquote, misuse, you know, diversion of, of Suboxone. People, I, I always remember this one person who was like, I never knew about that this thing existed. I never knew that doctors like you existed, that I could right. go and get a prescription for this thing that's going to stop me from having to deal with, you know, finding oxys and Percocets on the street. And like, what is one way you think that like, I guess we can, we can kind of bring that out there that like, Hey, there's, there's stuff that's out there. That's not, you know, a 12 step program and that there's not like sending you to a facility or X things like that. I think when we think about how we implement things uh, in American society that are widespread, we go to the producers and distributors of those things and we mm -hmm. implement it in that direction. So like if we want to make uh, like alcoholic beverages more safe, we wouldn't go to the person who's drinking the beverage to tell them what to do. We would go to the manufacturer and say like, this yeah. is how we want to like influence, you know, the, like the safety of this or like, here's a, like, you know, something to like sort of change your product or like, that you could give out with your product. Um, like, Oh, during Super Bowl weekend, hand out these vouchers for Uber, like yeah. with your product. Right. Instead of us just like handing them out, like have the people who are actually distributing. And so part of the problem with, with drugs is that in society we've criminalized and made drug dealers the, the sort of bad guy, right? Because when someone loses their kid to a fentanyl overdose, instinctually what do they do they blame the dealer right right like oh right. this dealer like maliciously killed my child and like it really is not not accurate at all because the thing is dealers don't have especially the last level dealer has zero yeah. choice in what the supply is right these are all extrinsic like factors like factors that are coming from way beyond them like there is nothing but fentanyl to offer yeah. there there is no heroin on the on the sort of like on the dealer market like they can only get access to fentanyl and that's what they're going to sell. Right. So they're the clerk of Seven Eleven, right? So, right. Exactly. That's exactly yeah. that what it is. They're not the owner of the Seven Eleven. They're not the owner of Coca-Cola, you know, who's creating the, the soda. Like 
they are literally the clerk, right? So, and we don't, when someone has a drunk driving accident, you know, we don't necessarily, you know, arrest the person that sold the beer to someone who was sober, right? So like, it's one thing, like, it's not a great analogy because if you serve someone in a bar and like that, right. But uh, in the 7-Eleven analogy, if that person bought a 12 pack, went home, drank the 12 pack, and then went out and drove, like it wouldn't be the fault of the clerk, right? So because we struggle to engage drug sellers, uh, I think we sort of miss out on more widespread implementation of these things. So mm-hmm. if, for example, when I have to find every person that's using to tell them that uh, like they should go get syringes from the syringe program, I'm only going to be able to find the ones that I can find. And because their people are criminalized, they're hiding. Like they're not out saying, yeah. hey, I, you know, if you have access to a dealer and you give the dealer 10,000 syringes and say, Hey, hand these out with what you're, you know, what you're, what you're selling. Now, every single person that's gotten it from that one person is going to be impacted. So there are harm reduction programs that have done a much better job of like finding sellers and working with them. Um, But I think that that's sort of like one of the, one of the approaches to like, to like accessing more people. Um, yeah, I think I think that's that's the idea, right? I think there was a great Netflix um, documentary, "The Business of Drugs," right? Um, I'm, I'm, you may have seen it, or may not have seen it, um, but like it's talking about the money, right, and where how how it all gets there, and, and it's that aspect of like you know, one from a business point of view, what benefit of it is it to the dealers or to, to the people who are above to kill their customers right right from there's there's no benefit right? like why would you want to do that like what kind of business thrives in that world where you're killing literally killing your people um so that doesn't make sense but yeah it's 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 being on that ground level and being like let's this is where you spread the word right um you can put commercials you can do x y and z but like that's what you gotta gotta get to ultimately end of the day yeah okay wrapping up a bit i know because we could we could discuss like all day long but we get i still got time so um i'll say well, wrapping up a little bit what are your favorite type of self-cares what are, what do you do personally for self-care yeah so i um made some big moves for self-care recently so mm-hmm. um after like a decade of being a first responder i was starting to sort of feel the um oh, the yeah. long the long-term impact of trauma um yeah and so I decided that it was time to like shift out of that frontline role and, and to do something a little bit more broad. And so when I, when I did that, um, I I'm home right now, right? I work mostly yeah. from home. I get to travel a lot uh, for this job, which is great. Um, I travel to speak, I travel to go to conferences and whatever, but I don't go into an office that much. And my wife also works from home. And so during this like process, we said to each other, like, where do we want to work from home from? <laughs> You know, like we were living in, in the Berkshires, which is like a mountain area. We lived in the woods and we were kind of sick of that. And we were like, what, where do we love? Where do we both love to be? And so we were like, well, we love the beach. And yeah. so um, we started to put into plan, like a, a into motion, a plan to get ourselves closer to the ocean um, so that we could enjoy the beach more. And um, we had been to Plymouth before. 
um, mm-hmm. for vacation. And uh, Plymouth is like a, a year round community. It's not like a, it's not super touristy. It's um, very yeah. like like year. So like the restaurants stay open and things. And like there's a lot of people with kids here. We have a huge school district. So we found a house that's like seven minutes from the beach. Oh, and nice. like I go to the beach like all the time. I went all winter. I got a wetsuit. Um, I go swimming in the ocean in a wetsuit in the winter. Um, in the summer, you know, work ends at like four thirty. Like I'm on the beach at four forty, um, <laughs> and and we'll like go for a couple hours and like have like a p- picnic on the beach for dinner. And like I just love the ocean. And then there's also like a a place nearby that has a webcam that views yeah. the ocean. And so a lot of times I'll have it open on my second screen while I'm working to like remind me nice. like okay that's where I can go. Um, so that's kind of like, that was like my big self-care journey. Um, after like, I was starting to have really bad nightmares and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Luckily that's like subsided. Okay. Um, so, but yeah, I've been out for, for like 18 months now and, um, it's been very life changing. Um, I think, I think we don't talk about that enough. Like the first responders and like the traumas that they have to see and deal with, like, um, especially like when you were working like as a paramedic and, and et cetera, is that like on the doc point of view, there's always that layer in between almost, right? The, the EMTs, the paramedics were there kind of initially kind of getting to the scene and cleaning it up per se to kind of get to the emergency room. Um, and then kind of the docs kind of do whatever they need to do. And like that gets lost on people. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm outside of DC. We I've worked with like people who've, you know, FBI, et cetera, who like do again, like, you know, child pornography stuff, um, all that stuff and working with them. And like, you're like, Oh, you forget that they're there and they see that stuff and they have to see that stuff year round. Like you can't just, you know, Oh, I'll just take a shower and bubble bath it and be good to go. Right. No, it doesn't, it doesn't go like that. Yeah. What, one thing that sort of like profoundly made me realize that like th- things needed to change for me was, um, in the sort of last year that I worked, um, I, I was a lieutenant, so I, I oversaw, um, a shift and I, um, but I also, because I was a lieutenant, I was sort of like on call if things were bad and there was nothing available and stuff. And so my, my, my pager went off, uh, I'm sitting there having dinner on a Sunday where we had ordered pizza and I'm sitting there with my kids and my wife, we're eating pizza and my pager goes off and, like we hear what the call is for and they said like, we need a paramedic to come in and to, to um, respond for, for a possible suicide. Hmm. And my kids are just like looking at me and they're like, are you the paramedic that has to go to that? And I'm like, yeah, I am. Hmm. And so like I went and I like pronounced this person who had, who had killed themselves. And 30 minutes later, I'm like back home with my kids. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just like not, there's nothing normal about that. Right, right. You know, it's like, like, how do you like, and then the, the other thing is like that people don't realize, like when you work in the hospital, the hospital is a traumatizing space for you because you're constantly like re-traumatized in the same place and it can, it can grow on you. Um, the thing about EMS is that when you work in a community, uh, everywhere you associate with bad calls. So I would drive around and be like dead person, dead person, dead person, like like everywhere I went. And then I would go to Walmart to go to like grocery shopping and it would be like, I'd run into families of like people I I had worked and pronounced or like, yeah. So part of moving was like leaving that so that, cause like I drive around here in Plymouth, like I have no trauma here. It's all beach. (laughs) It's all great. 
I live on a yeah. sand dune basically. And like, I don't get reminded constantly of like, I, I responded to more than 8,000 calls in my career. Oh my goodness. Yikes. And like, I, I pronounced like more than 300 people. Wow. And like, it, it, it's like hard to even imagine like that, that was, that that's a real job, you know? And like, and it's interesting too, like, um, you, you bring up a good point. It's like, it, uh, people are a little bit like dehumanized when they come to the hospital because they're just like a, they're like a body like that's come yeah. in. And like, mm-hmm. for me, like I always had to see the full picture. Yep. Like the first overdose I ever pronounced somebody, um, the, the, the guy was like laying in a, in a mud room in a bed of his children's shoes hmm. and his kids were upstairs sleeping. Yeah. That was like 10 years ago. And like, I'll never, like I, I've forgotten others before, yeah. like, so, but, yeah. but that one was so impactful because it's like, it wasn't just that he was like someone who had died. It was like the story was right there in front of me. Yeah. And, yeah. um, it's, it, it, it's hard to like, like the, and, and the thing is the patient often doesn't traumatize you. It's the family. Yeah. And how the family reacts can traumatize you. Like the, the easiest pronouncements were ones where nobody was home and like a neighbor found them. Yeah. Cause you just go and be like, okay, person's dead. Like write a report and leave. Yeah. When, when it was the, like the family was there, that was when it was the worst, you know, and, and, yeah. and being the person has to tell them like, we're not going to do anything. Yeah. Or we're stopping what we're doing. Yeah. And that was like my job for the last four years of my career. My job was to to terminate CPR mm. in the field. Yeah. So That's, during COVID. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. The reactions part is always, is always the hardest part, right? Again, I think you're right. Is that, you know, when somebody is, you know, unfortunately has passed, you know, they can't react, right? That's part of it, and that's the end of the story, end of their story, right? right. Um, but it's everybody else; their story kind of goes on and or starts or whatever it is that's going to happen. So that's always the hardest part of it. So, and and because we started this about self care, and I somehow turned it down a very dark road, I'm going to turn it around for us real quick. Because sometimes families can turn things around for you as well. So one of my yeah. friends who I um, I revived from an overdose who then died from a subsequent overdose, there's like this famous bridge in North Adams where someone spray painted, you're going to be okay. And everybody drives yeah. under it all the time. And so his yeah. mom made me this uh, like yeah. as a way to sort of like heal. Because I left North Adams and like uh, the bridge, I used to drive under it all the time. And uh, I always looked at the thing, like, you're going to be okay. I'm like, thanks. Like, it inspires, like, our entire city, like, this graffiti that someone just, like, yeah. sprayed onto it. And it looks just like, it's the same letters. It looks just like this. Yeah. And so, like, you know, sometimes we can heal also through family. Um, yeah. So I, I am super appreciative of her that, like, she thought to do that for me. Um, yeah. I, I, keep it in I, my always, office. I always tell people, is like, you know, those, those letters that you get from people, right? Um, they matter to us, right? They matter to us on that other side of like, if you write a thank you note, like it's it's why I always tell people is like, if you can write a thank you note to your doctor or therapist or whoever, like write the, write the note write it. if you want to, because like we cherish that more so than like the Starbucks card, right? Yes. We cherish that stuff much more than like the DoorDash card because like that's why we do it, right? It's kind of in a way to kind of get that 
aspect of like, okay, we've done something, we've made an impact. Like in my office, like on the other side of this wall, like I keep all the thank you cards on the wall. All the thank you cards are, are there. They're always like a reminder for staff to be like, this is why we do it. Yes. Right? Um, so I, I, I just got this one, this one this yeah. week from an overdose. Yeah. Yeah. This is someone who like, I saved from an overdose having a right. baby. Yeah. And like that's, that, that's what it's about. Yeah, right? It is. You've saved, saved two lives, right? Yeah. So, so on that note, um, yeah. we'll kind of quickly add in their favorite pair of sneakers. <laughs> Do you have a favorite pair of sneakers? So, you know, I've never been like a shoe guy and like yeah. I have gone, uh, off the, off the, the opposite side of the spectrum and, and I never thought I would be this person, but I'm like a croc mm-hmm. guy now, oh, no. which is so sacrilegious. <laughs> right. Um, and, but I have like Crocs for every occasion, you know, I've got like my winter Crocs that are like insulated. (laughs) I've got like my summer, like beach Crocs, which are like a little beat up, but I've got my, I got my fancy Crocs. Like I, I, I have, um, uh, I don't like to tie shoes cause I'm overweight. And so I can't breathe when I bend over. (laughs) Um, I have to hold my breath while I tie my shoes. So, um, slip-ons have become uh, really important to me. There, um, that that works. So, okay, comf- comfort over everything. So that's right. Yeah. All right. Well, Stephen, how can people follow along with you, and then how can they support everything that you're doing as well? Yeah, sure. So, um, you can follow me on Twitter. It's like my primary uh, social. I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, the the overdose hotlines. If you live in Massachusetts, if you go on our website, it's massoverdosehelpline.org. Um, which is like a, it's like a, a temporary site currently, but there's a form where you can request, uh, business cards and posters for your program. Um, if you live in another state, um, we recommend that you, um, refer people to never use alone. Um, so it's a really great resource and feel free to call us and make sure it works. So we get a lot of those calls and, um, you may get, if you call the Massachusetts line, I might be the one that picks up. So, all right. Um, Wonderful. yeah, really appreciate you. And thanks for having me on. No, of course, we'll make sure we have those linked in here. And thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story and and keep doing what you're doing. We know that you're saving lives and doing everything that you can. Thanks, man. All right.